0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com
1: This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about
0: On this program, branding expert Carolina Rogol talks about how to update a brand and why sabbaticals are a good idea
1: Best decision of my life, by the way. It was all about conquering my fear and letting go of that very well-planned life.
0: Here's Debbie Millman. Brands are like characters in the daily drama of consumer life. But what makes some brands stars? Why do most brands never become household names? Does it have to do with product quality? With the logo and other design elements? With advertising and social media? With the leadership of the brand's parent company? These are the sorts of questions we ponder here at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts. One of my colleagues in the program is Carolina Regole, who has been building some of the world's best-known brands for over a decade. Her new book about the fundamentals of branding is called Star Brands, A Brand Manager's Guide to Build, Manage, and Market Brands. Carolina, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you, Debbie. I'm excited to be here at your program. Caroline, I
0: read that when you were seven years old, you began collecting candy wrappers with bold colors, distinctive shapes and interesting fonts, and carefully organized them in beautifully designed binders. Why were you doing this and what were you planning on doing with the binders?
1: Well, I guess I was meant to be a brand builder one day. (laughs) Either that or a collector. Yes. My fascination with brands really started at a very early age. And these binders, I still have them, by the way. How many do you have? I probably have four or five. Then from the candy wrappers and stickers and also postcards from brands, those that you could get at restaurants that are a type of old advertising. So what is it about brands that
0: fascinated you at such a young age?
1: I love the aesthetics of something that was very well designed and intended to convey a message. And at the same time, I liked having different logos and different colors and different shapes that I could organize to my own liking. So these binders that I had were organized by colors, by type of brand. So I was trying to almost organize the brands in my own brand world. So I was curating brands at a very early age, I would say. (laughs) I actually, inspired by my collection, started little businesses. When I was in elementary school and then high school, I had a very interesting target to go after, which were the neighbors that we have in um, in the community that had, I guess, disposable income that I could go after <laughs> with my own brands and holiday businesses. And I was, I think, trying to create my own brands
0: So I think you started your first business when you were 10. You were living in Colombia, is that correct? And you were creating Christmas lanterns? Yes,
1: I started with Christmas lanterns, and then I thought they would go nicely with Christmas cards that I would design myself.
0: So your first brand extension? Yes,
1: my first line extension, (laughs) and uh, yes, and I did that every holiday.
0: How do you go about making a Christmas lantern?
1: Those actually I got from the wholesale market. So <laughs> you I 10. Yes, I understood the concept of markup uh, <laughs> at a very early age. Now, the cards were designed by me, but I found, I think at 10, I didn't have very nice handwriting. So I found a local calligrapher to do the uh, typesetting for me.
0: And mm-hmm. were these businesses profitable?
1: Well, I think what I made surpassed my allowance, which I guess it was very successful for that age. But clearly I was just doing transactions and selling merchandise. I was just not building brands. And at that point, I realized I was better off studying to be a full-time brand builder, and that's what I did later on. But it started from a very early age in collecting candy wrappers.
0: You started college at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, but transferred to Tulane University in New Orleans, where you got your undergraduate degree in marketing and management. What made you decide to transfer to a university in the United States?
1: Well, I wanted to come to the U.S. to really learn how to do marketing. In Colombia I had great foundational training, but I wanted to also get the best of the best in terms of marketing training. So when I transferred to Tulane, my intent was that I would be graduating from the US, having a degree here, so I could stay here professionally. So I got the best of the best, great university in Columbia, all the foundation, and also starting to get my feet wet into what does it really take to market big brands like the U.S. is known for doing.
0: So you always had this single-minded focus about what you wanted to do, never any doubt about what it was you saw yourself doing in the future, never a sidebar into ballet or playing the clarinet or anything like that?
1: I always wanted to be a businesswoman. I guess when I was growing up I got to travel quite a bit with my parents and I always wonder what the people in business class did or why they were traveling in a different section than everyone else. And I could just see they were up to I guess, doing business around the world. And I found that really appealing. So it's one of those things that when you're little, certain things impact you and help you define what you want to do in the future. So I really wanted to always study business. But then my love for marketing and the brand started to connect when I found the connection between brand building and building a business.
0: And the binders. And And the the binders, binders. (laughs) yes. Yes. What was the biggest change for you in moving from Bogota, Colombia, to New Orleans, Louisiana?
1: I think just the lifestyle, difference of coming from Colombia, adapting to the U.S. lifestyle, which is more fast-paced, more business-oriented. It's harder to necessarily meet people uh, in South America, relationships, and it feels more... Uh, warm, and uh, everyone is like an extended family. In the U.S., I had to start all over again.
0: You then went on to get your master's in business administration, an MBA from Xavier University, which is considered one of the country's best and most entrepreneurial business schools. Given that the university is in Cincinnati, would it be fair to say that you had your eyes set on getting a job with P&G when you graduated? Uh, In many ways, it seems as if this was the job or the kind of job you were preparing for yourself since you were seven.
1: Absolutely. I think my first job uh, getting into a big corporation that is known for their brands was really what I was meant to do. All the studies that I had uh, been pursuing actually were meant for me to land unknowingly, if you will, into a big company where I could get to market and build those brands.
0: In some of your writing, you've described P&G, the world's largest consumer brands company, as the mecca of brand management. Why do you think that way?
1: Well, it's based in history and public knowledge that brand building started at Procter & Gamble as a corporation where the famous Neil McElroy memo was written when he was desperately trying to build, you know, the Kamei brand.
0: So talk about that memo a little bit.
1: Uh, Nygma Elroyd was an advertising leader in, in Procter & Gamble. And, and what
0: year was this, or roundabouts?
1: In the early 1930s. So when this memo was written, he was trying to basically create the first time an organization that was focused on building brands as a way to manage them more effectively, get re- resources more effectively, and get the polls in the market on how these brands can really flourish. Because what was happening before is there were no really concentrated efforts in terms of how brands were considered entities that needed to be nurtured, that needed to be targeted to specific consumers, and needed to have their independent brand man, at the time how they were being called, dedicated to them to be responsible and accountable for their growth and their sales in connecting with all the different people that were responsible for making them profitable, and also reaching consumers on a day-to-day basis.
0: So he had a sort of Jerry Maguire moment in the organization, but he didn't get fired. He actually got embraced.
1: Actually, that memo started to travel throughout the organization, and very quickly, he got the support for the recommendation that he was making for his brand, but also became how uh, Procter & Gamble decided to organize itself for the years to come around brand building groups or brand men, brand managers, as we know them today. And several corporations followed.
0: How did it catch on so quickly? Even though you're talking about 1930, it's still quite quickly, almost virally at the time, given that there was no such thing, accepted and then adopted through every major corporation all over the world. Why do you think that that happened?
1: Because it worked. (laughs) <laughs> you know, very simply, you know, I, I really believe that the power on brand management at that time catching on is because of the benefits that focus brings. Focus on having the right resources and dedication and being associated with a brand as a profit center and also as a value creator. You could tell that by having accountability for a specific organization that is responsible for all the elements on how the brand looks and feels and comes across to the consumer was really effective, and that continues to be the case today. And I think brand managers today continue to be very proud of the fact that they're the ones where everything stops in terms of being responsible for what happens day to day. I think what has changed is the toolbox of the tools that the brand managers use to build their brands today, all the way from the media marketplace becoming more complex to changing needs of consumers and also regulation and the number of available brands out there. But the core principles of brand management and what it means to manage a brand continue to be consistent.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about brand management, which you do really beautifully in your new book, Star Brands, A Brand Manager's Guide to Build, Manage, and Market Brands. In your introduction, you state Star brands are the celebrities of the branding world, the leading lights that we all look to in admiration, and sometimes a little awe. So Carolina, what are the attributes of a star brand?
1: What makes them special is a couple of characteristics. The first one is clarity. When I talk about clarity is this concept of know thyself, right, which is also speaks to the importance of self-awareness of the individual. It also applies to brands. That means understanding who you stand for as a brand, what has driven your success in the past, what has held you back, who you're trying to appeal to. So having clarity is one of those characteristics of star brands. Another characteristic is having a high order purpose. So star brands are those that go beyond the products or services they sell. The reason why this is important is because star brands have been able to go above and beyond just the superior benefits that they offer in the product to really stand for something more. And as you know, consumers want to connect with brands that speak to higher ideals. The top of the equity pyramid of these brands typically speaks to a higher order benefit that consumers are really aspiring to. So you'll see that I reference Maslow several times in the book is because all the brand building theory is based on the hierarchy of needs where brands are trying to solve the needs all the way above the pyramid that Maslow has laid out for us. And then the brands that do that best are the ones that are able to deliver in a higher order of benefits.
0: So do you feel that brands now must have a higher order purpose and an emotional deliverable of sorts, do you feel that society now requires that brands deliver on those levels?
1: If you have a brand, you need to be able to articulate why you exist. The difference is that not all brands need to actively communicate it in advertising versus others. So it's important to have a higher order ideal to guide the brand in terms of the everyday activities, in terms of product development. But I see differences in terms of how much of that is communicated to the actual consumer. So you should define it, but I think there are many different ways to bring it to life.
0: What do you mean by brand ideal?
1: Brand ideal is basically the purpose of why you exist. So, for example, in the case of Google... You know, their mission is to organize the world's information. That ideal allows them to expand and really solve multiple needs that the consumers might have. But they're already starting from, call it a bigger reason on why they're here.
0: As I was thinking about the brand ideal while reading your book, I was reminded of the notion that so many of the legacy brands that still exist in the marketplace today were created by people that are probably in many ways no different than the entrepreneurs of today that brought to market products that really reflected their own values and their own personal attributes. So there was a Procter and a Gamble and a Kellogg's and Johnson and a Johnson. And in many ways... The brands that have been built over the years and then sold and and marketed to billions of of people in many ways all started out very similarly to the startups that we have today. What gives a brand that long-lasting momentum in the marketplace?
1: I would say two things. One, and the reason I have my own theory why there's even a comeback of brands that say that are started by the name of the founder, right? And basically what sets them apart is authenticity. I think now more than ever, consumers are seeking brands that really connect to them and that the persona that they want to belong to of that world. But I think what has really allowed many of these brands to survive, if you will, the challenges that the marketplace and all the changes in consumers is what I call commitment to learning. And,
0: Elaborate. That's really interesting.
1: Yes. Commitment to learning, and I like to use this analogy, is similar to the evolution theory, right? It's not the survival of the smartest or the most intelligent one. is the one that is most adaptable to change. It's the brands that have been able to adjust to the changing needs of the consumers and evolve their own identities and evolve the way in which they look at the market that have been able to grow as consumers' demands grow as well. So when you have a brand, you need to be able to have a very strong pulse in the market on what will change and when is the inflection point for you to change as well, while still being authentic to the roots of where you were coming from and continue to leverage that strength in the marketplace to set yourself apart.
0: Why do you see this as a commitment to learning as opposed to a commitment to change or adaptation?
1: If I would say commitment to changing, you wouldn't know when it would be the right time to change unless you have an ongoing way to measure what's going on. And that is the importance in learning. If your organization is built, that every single individual understands that basically documenting how things went documenting what is happening in the market, and making recommendations of what needs to be done in the future, that is what enables you to pinpoint the right time to change. Otherwise, it would be change for change's sake.
0: So it's about being able to recognize the patterns in the marketplace that give you an understanding of when it might be the right time to evolve.
1: It's about having a pulse in the market and an ongoing learning plan that allows you to adapt.
0: Your Star Brands model is a framework. How would you describe a framework to someone who's never used one?
1: It's a series of steps that you can follow to increase the chances of success of completing a task. In the case of brand building, the Brand model is a framework of guided steps that you follow, one through five, that will help you through completion from moving from an idea through the strategy, creativity, and creation of that idea all the way into a tangible action plan that you can act against.
0: Can you give us an example? Can you tell us about each of the five steps?
1: Yes. Step one is what I call brand assessment. This is probably one of the biggest mistakes I see people in the brand building field do, which is jumping to a brand repositioning or jumping to changing things on on the brand without really, really understanding the root causes of the situation that they're at. You need to know where you stand before you can decide where you're going. Step two is equity and target. And that means it's really connecting back to the concept of clarity, which is something that the star brands do best. Really defining what you want to stand for, for the consumer, and who are the consumers that you should be going after. And these two go hand in hand.
0: In Chapter 5, you quote Jon Stewart, the former CEO of Quaker, talking about brand equity, and you quote him saying, if this business were split up, I would give you the land and bricks and mortar, and I would take the brands and trademarks, and I would fare better than you. Why do you include that, and what exactly does that mean?
1: I love that quote because it summarizes why I do what I do for a living, because there's a lot of value to create behind brands, because brands are ideas that allow businesses to generate income by creating differentiated products and differentiated services that consumers can resist but to get, can resist (laughs) but to be part of that world that you're creating with the brand. A brand, the meaning of a brand and what it represents for a consumer or the ways in which you're solving the needs of a consumer is way more important than where the brand might be Produced, which wasn't the case of of Quaker because um, he wanted to make the point that the brand was the most valuable asset, if you will, of the company's P&L. And it's hard sometimes to give value exactly to the brand because it's an elusive thing, you know, unless you have the logos and the product to show the brand is an idea. Um, so I kind of love that, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> it captures really the value, the tremendous value that there is in brand building, and it's a value that is created over time that it's important to note. Can you talk about step three, four, and five? Yes. In step two, we defined what we want to stand for and who we're going after. And step three is what are you going to tell them? What is the compelling reason why they should buy your product? So we talk about the different communication strategies and more importantly, how are you going to transform the benefit that your brand offers into compelling communication? And that is where the fascinating world of insight and human truths come in in a way that you build communication that really connects with the heart and mind of consumers. And once you have the communication And the previous steps that we talked, step four is about really putting your marketing hat on and we go back to the principle of the four P's that is still applicable today. You need a positioning, you need the product or service, you need uh, the pricing and you need placement, which is distribution and understanding what is the ideal mix of those variables in order to translate into brand sales. Because ultimately, you need consumers for it to be a brand. So you need to understand what is the right combination. That's called the marketing mix. We're preparing a recipe on how are you going to maximize the sales of the brand and business that you are uh, building.
0: And then the final step five. The
1: final step is putting it all on paper and making it happen as an action plan. And that is, again, with the idea of commitment to learning, which is, Once you said you're going to do something, you're going to try it in market, and you're going to measure if that works or not. This model is not a one-time thing. Every year, even the biggest brands are reassessing how their brand building is coming about, how their investment in marketing is working. Did they get the right mix? Are they really reaching the consumers they intended to? You
0: referenced Maslow earlier in our interview today Talk a little bit about Maslow and his continued importance in building brands.
1: Well, first, this is an official shout out to Maslow for (laughs) giving us great foundation into brand building. (laughs) It's true. I, I would say what was fascinating about building book is I kept going back to just the principles of humans. We all have needs that we're trying to solve through branded products. And Because of the different needs that a human might have, there could be several brands that fight to address those needs best. So it's almost like a market competition to serve the consumer in the best way. So Maslow, the way I use it in the book is that understanding where your brand delivers on those needs based on the pyramid allows you to carve out a space that you can uniquely own and develop your positioning. And by the same token, you can use Maslow to identify who are the consumers that you could serve best. So it helps to determine, for example, a need-based segmentation so that you can carve out then the consumers to whom your benefit is going to be most relevant.
0: So in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he started from the most basic of needs that are physical requirements for human survival. If the requirements aren't met, the human body cannot function properly and will ultimately fail, and then moved on to safety needs with physical mm-hmm. needs relatively satisfied the individual safety takes precedence and then Mm -hmm. dominates behavior. And then we move on to love and belonging. And then self-esteem. We need to feel respected and have self-respect. And esteem presents the typical human desire to be accepted and valued by others. And then, of course, self-actualization. And Maslow describes this level as the desire to accomplish everything that one can and to become the most that one can be. How do brands address this hierarchy, and is there one specific place within the hierarchy that brands should be most concerned about?
1: It's a very good question because you find the whole gamut, right? Several brands that are really based on ideal, they focus on the top of the pyramid, which, as you were sharing, is the pinnacle of human self-realization. So when we are in the space of defining brand ideals... We go up in the pyramid. So higher order benefits.
0: What is a higher order benefit?
1: Higher order benefit, as you say, for example, sense of belonging. When we think about a brand like Harley, right? Harley of Davidson. Harley Davidson, of course, you know, the product that they have are bikes, right? So in theory, you would put them in a bucket of they solve a transportation need. But no one would ever imagine that Harley would Beats fulfilling the transportation need. They are focused on a higher level of the pyramid, which is allowing people to fulfill their personal dreams. That doesn't necessarily talk about transportation.
0: How are they fulfilling their dreams?
1: How the brain comes to life in terms of the sense of belonging that they are trying to generate with the homeowner groups, the way that the brain expresses itself, the customization that the products that are available in their products, there are several elements of the Harley-Davidson equity pyramid that supports a higher ideal of fulfilling personal dreams through the experience of uh, an American brand that allows a consumer to basically express themselves in a very different way that they would do with a different bike, if you will.
0: Do they address the esteem? Hierarchy or self actualization, or both?
1: I think both because they're different consumer groups. Even when you think about the people that get Harleys, some of them is because they find the freedom in riding these bikes on their weekends. They have regular lifestyles and busy call it business owners, and then they break away. For other uh, consumer groups is the sense of belonging and actually being part of the Harley family, if you will. But So even within higher order benefits, there could be different needs that a brand can fulfill. In
0: Chapter 7, you state that the core elements of any brand communication are insights, benefits, and ideas, which you refer to as IBI. What is the difference between an insight and an idea?
1: The idea is really the transformation of the insight and the benefit coming together. So the idea only happens once you have provided basically in the brief, hopefully in the brief, the insight that comes from the target consumer and the benefit that comes from your brand. Equity pyramids typically give you the points of difference or the points of superiority that your brand has. So the insight is not an idea because it hasn't been solved by what your brand offers. So the idea is the translation of the insight that comes from your specific target consumer and the benefit from your brand coming together in a very clever way. That is the creative transformation of that communication that really turns into an idea.
0: You include... One of the best ideas of all time in star brands, and that is the Apple idea of here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and square holes. One of the great ideas of all time in terms of thinking different or think different. Where does that fit into the hierarchy of needs from a Maslow perspective?
1: Very high. Very high because it speaks to self-actualization, which is basically fulfilling truly your true potential through the expression of thinking differently. So I think it's very high in the hierarchy of need. It doesn't talk about computers or performance or megabytes or anything that the products or what Apple, even when the campaign came out, was offering. It was basically coming from the intent that we stand for something different And it's what this product allows you to do, which is really thinking differently and giving you basically the chance to now fulfill your true potential.
0: I love the fact that embedded in this statement, they offer the idea that Thinking different allows you to push the human race forward. The statement finishes, they push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Carolina, prior to writing Star Brands, you took a sabbatical from p I read that you were feeling stuck, a little bit unfulfilled, And inspired by Ariana Huffington's book Thrive and her journey through redefining success, you decided to leave your job for a bit, your home, and your packed calendar, and you took off. What did you do?
1: Best decision of my life, by the way. Um, It was all about conquering my fear and and letting go that very well-planned life that was maybe sucking the joy out of it, really. And uh, I left and traveled the world and met several people, understood that different lifestyles were possible, continued to think about the book and how I can continue to, I guess, and the Maslow hierarchy of need, you know, <laughs> achieve my full potential, uh, that it didn't mean necessarily continue to be sitting on my desk. And the experience of being present every day during the trip Being full of energy and not being set by a time schedule really allowed me to tap into an inner channel of creativity that I didn't even know I had. So the experience of breaking away, if you will, and finding the time to find meaning again and uh, being connected with everything that was basically out there, but I was just missing out because I was just overscheduled, perhaps... Uh, was really life changing, and the experience has only brought me amazing surprises. Since I came back, my career continues to soar. I've become a stronger leader because I had a lot of things in a great perspective. You know, for example, I love when Simon Sinek says, "You know, be the leader you wish you had." And I believe that's true, and that's something that the sabbatical allowed me to see. So taking a break was the right thing to do for me, and I would do it again. I plan on living my life as if I was on a sabbatical ongoing, and if I ever forget that, it means I need to break away and get my priorities straight. So I would highly recommend it uh, to anyone to take the break when you need it to recharge.
0: You stated that you experienced magical changes, week by week. What were some of the most important changes?
1: We are most of the time in our heads when we have a lot of commitments and a lot of uh, ideas, like in my case, you know, always, always thinking. And I learned that actually just being with the people, talking to people, being curious, being able to connect with others, was more important than just always being in your head and creating on your own right? So the human connection uh, was very enriching. I spent more time connecting and less on, on my own uh, thinking and building ideas. The second one is this idea of feeling time starved. And it's really a personal responsibility to create time for the things that matter most. In reality, the time constraint is self-inflicted. So I can choose to spend my day on five things and do them really well, or I can choose to spend my day on 25 things and don't do them really well. But the difference is really the level of presence and the level of attention that I bring to each of them.
0: I read that you came to terms with your active mind. How did you do that?
1: Meditation helps a lot and yoga practice and just basically getting out of your traditional routine. I think when we are in the same routine, that's where we almost tend to get inside our heads and start to create a busy mind because we don't have that much to pay attention to outside. So I choose to be outside of my head now more often than before, because I know that that's where life is. It's not inside my head.
0: Aside from leadership, now that you've reentered your corporate life, have these changes stayed with you?
1: For the most part, yes. I, I have to admit, especially the scheduling part is, is really hard, right? Because if you have a demanding job and you have a lot of activities, it's hard to fit it all in. I continue to practice meditation uh, at least once a day. So that's a practice that I uh, hold dear. I, I talk a lot about sunsets in, in, my, in my articles and Tend to find time for watching sunsets wherever I am, or at least I remember oh wow, the sunset is is coming, so that keeps me grounded, and also just leaving a, a healthy lifestyle and going on vacation often you know every quarter, trying to go somewhere where I can recharge and remember the experience of the sabbatical because you will be surprised that the more you do these experiences, the more you can connect with them, even when you're back to remind you. In moments of stress, in moments of when you don't know what to do, or in moments of um, high doubt, if you will, they are very helpful tools to latch on to.
0: The last question I want to ask you is about a quote you include in Star Brands from John Cleese, one of the founding members of Monty Python, and not somebody I would necessarily equate with branding. He states, creativity is not a talent, it is a way of operating." Uh, first, where did you find that line? And second, can you talk about why you believe it's true?
1: Yes. Uh, it actually, it's a great find. Uh, there's a video of a lecture that he gave several years ago, I think is 15 years ago, to an audience that I couldn't really, um, I think it's in a different language even when I got a hold uh, of the video, but it was a recommendation of a very famous creative director. And he used this video with his uh, creative team to explain the concept of staying open longer. And what that means is that the most creative individuals are not the ones necessarily that come up with the best ideas, are the ones that can stay in the open mode longer, which is play with those ideas and fight the urge to lend those ideas or fall or solve for them immediately. So uh, that concept of creativity that John Cleese talks about is all about The process of how ideas are built being more important that the the ability to generate unique ideas on your own is a way of how you play with them, how you nurture them, how you protect them, how you play with them for a little longer and resist the urge of killing them or evolving them to something else before it's time.
0: Carolina, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters today. Carolina Regal's new book is star brands a brand manager's guide to build manage and market brands this year we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of design matters and i'd like to thank you for listening and remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both i'm debbie millman and i look forward to talking with you again soon